You're listening to an Axe Church sermon. If you haven't heard of Axe Church before, we are a church in Camas, Washington. You can check us out at axecamas.org. You can see what we're about and what we're up to. We're glad you're listening today and hope you enjoy this sermon. We've been going through the book of Acts. We've been going through it for a while, just studying through the book, and that's kind of what we do here, not just the book of Acts. Eventually, we will get to other books, but right now, we're in the book of Acts, um, and it's a history of the church, okay? It begins when Jesus kind of gave some of his last commands to his disciples, kind of told them what was up, told them, you know, that they were to go out into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the world to make disciples for him, that the Holy Spirit was going to empower them, and that's exactly what happened after Jesus uh, ascended, went back to heaven, Uh, Pentecost, the day of Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit empowered all these Christ followers to uh, basically have the power of the Holy Spirit in going out and witnessing to the resurrection, which was the most important thing about the Christian faith. Without the resurrection, which is Jesus dying and rising again, we wouldn't be here today. We wouldn't be wasting our time because it's the thing that verified the ministry and the claims of Jesus Christ. And so that's what they went out doing. And we saw the church begin in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, and now we've been seeing it go to the ends and the far reaches of the world. We're kind of in the Roman world. We've been following a guy named Paul, who's an apostle of Jesus Christ, uh, who has been through a lot so far as he's been bringing the word to people. Not everybody has really liked uh, what Paul has had to say about Jesus and about the, the life that he brings. So there's been some pushback, some of which has been difficult and violent and so on for Paul. And so last week we were in Ephesus. We've been in Ephesus a little while uh, where Paul has come back. This is his third missionary journey. And he's in Ephesus. This is in the Roman province of Asia, kind of modern day Turkey. Um, and he's taught there now in the last passage we read. He taught there for a couple years. And essentially through his teaching and through those he reached through his teaching, he has reached the entire province, Roman province of Asia. So the gospel, that is the claims of Jesus Christ, the story of redemption and transformation in him has gone far and wide throughout the province of Asia. And the people have been, as we read last week, they're turning away. They're turning away from their cultural practices and their sinful ways. And they're, and they're living a life of Christ following. And the Bible tells us that after they kind of did that and they t- kind of took a step, this, this church in Ephesus, a step, they burned all these old you know, magic books and stuff that they had, and they basically said, look, we're going to be fully surrendered here. We see that the power of God is the real power as he was doing things there. And it says at the end of that, what we read last week, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And so we have a powerful statement here of the power of God working when we give up our secret sins, when we give up those things that we kind of hold to ourselves and we surrender fully to Christ, that God will be faithful to that and work through us and give us opportunities to see other people transformed, to see the power of the kingdom of God go forward, okay? And so that's what we saw last time. Uh, we see that, uh, that these people in Ephesus have matured to a certain point and that the word of the Lord is just going gangbusters, now, before I get into the next part, I want to ask you guys a question. I'm, as some of you know, I'm a recovering lawyer. Occasionally, I'll tell a lawyer joke. There are only three, as you know. The rest are true stories. Um, but uh, I've thought about the law quite a bit. And one of the things I thought about while, while I was reading through this passage as, as I was seeing what it had to say to us this morning is this question. Would you rather have laws <clears throat> that were enforced against every wrong thing that people might do? Or would you rather people's hearts changed so they didn't want to do wrong things? 
So it wouldn't matter what the law is. And it's pretty much a rhetorical question, I hope. Um, some of you are like, no, I'd just, I just rather have the laws. Um, obviously, you know, it, it makes sense. But I want you to, as we're going through this passage, I want you to think about some of that, okay? Some of what's happened here in Ephesus. So um, we'll come back to that. Right now we're in Acts 19. We're going to go to chapter uh, verse 21. So if you have your Bible, you can get that out. If not, it's going to be up on the screen here. And let's start with verse 21. If I can find it, that's chapter 20. That's the wrong chapter. That's why it didn't look right. All right. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul is here. We're still in Ephesus, okay? And Paul has purposed in the spirit to sort of go on a particular journey, Macedonia and Achaia, and later to Rome. We have a map here uh, so you can see Macedonia and Achaia are kind of parts of Greece. Macedonia is that top part, that northern portion. That's where Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, if you remember weeks back when we were talking about those, there's churches there. As Paul went through with the ministry with these guys and, and these churches were formed, he wants to go back and visit them and and then he wants to come back through Achaia, okay? And Achaia is that lower part where Athens is, where Corinth is. Hopefully you can see that up on those maps. And Paul has, while he's in Ephesus here, he's written the book of 1 Corinthians, okay? And that's, that's gone out. He's actually written more than one. It wasn't a book. It was a letter. Now we call it the book of 1 Corinthians. It's actually a letter from Paul to the Corinthian church. It's not actually the first letter he wrote to them. We don't have the first letter he wrote to them. We just know that he has already written to them before that. But he's written that Paul's wanting to get back over there, okay, to these churches and to deal with some of what has come up since he's been gone. All right? And so he's purposed in the Spirit. In the Spirit. That means that Paul, as he's working through this stuff, as he's figuring out where the Lord is leading him, he's actually figuring out where the Lord is leading him. He's listening to the Holy Spirit. He's praying. He's thinking through it. And it says he's purposed to do these things. And he has a plan. He wants to go to uh, Achaia, to Macedonia, and then Achaia. And then he'd like to go to Rome. Now, we will see that eventually Paul does get to Rome. Not exactly as I think he probably thought he would get there, but that actually comes later. And Lord willing, as we get to the end of Acts, we will talk more about Paul in Rome. But for now, let's go to verse 22. And it says this. If I can find it again. There we go. All right. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. But he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So we've met Timothy before. For those of you who have been here for a while, we know who Timothy is. Timothy has been a faithful companion and helper in the ministry to Paul. Erastus, we don't really know, but we know that he sent these two guys ahead of himself, okay, to prepare the way. What's important to understand in this verse is that Paul is not winging it. Okay? He's not just like, I'm going to go over here, then I'm going to go over here. We're just going to see what happens. He's just flinging stuff out. That's not the way he works. Paul has a mission, a clear mission. In fact, all of us, Paul's mission is just like all of our mission. It's been given to us, to every Christ follower, the same mission. We find it in Matthew 28. I'm going to read verses 19 and 20. It says this, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. That's our mission. That's our mission. Everyone who is a Christ follower, that's your mission. We're to go, we're to make disciples, get them baptized, teach them to follow all that Jesus has commanded. That's your mission. Now, here's the thing. When you have a mission, you've got to have a plan. 
you've got to have a plan. Missions don't just come together, you know, just by themselves, right? You've got to have a plan. We as a church, you, all of you in your family, you plan things out. Hopefully, you plan things out. You figure things out. I mean, we don't go to the store usually without a plan, okay? Paul, in, in this very large missionary work, has a plan. And he sent Timothy and Erastus ahead of him to prepare things for the plan of ministry as he was going to go through Macedonia and Achaia and so on. Okay? As the church, we all work together. Paul is not everything. Okay? Paul, this is not all about Paul. This, this book, the Acts, is not really, some people call it the Acts of the, the Apostles. Really, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Right? Paul is just being used and making disciples for Christ, and those disciples for Christ, as they become mature, are going out and doing the work. Paul did not reach all of Asia by himself. Okay? Paul was teaching. Those people were likely going out and teaching. This was moving out. The number of churches in that region were probably being started there. The point that I'm making here is that just as you, as the body of Christ, every one of you here who's a Christ follower, is going out and doing things, sometimes we hear one name a lot. Oh, here's Paul. Okay, or even Timothy, who we've heard from a lot, or heard Luke, who wrote the book, or whatever. But there are tons and tons of people who are growing in the Lord, being discipled, maturing, and going out and doing the work. And that is what every one of you who is a Christ follower is doing, will be doing, and will be doing in greater and greater ways. You may be called to go somewhere. You know, that may not be a thought you want to think about today, but that may happen. Because go was the first word in verse 19. We go. Sometimes we just go out of our door right? Sometimes we just go by being here, but we're going to go. We're going to make disciples. Every one of you is going to have an opportunity to be part of that. And so it's important to see that back then Paul was doing the same thing. He had a plan and he activated these guys to go do miss, missionary work. All right, let's, let's move forward here. <clears throat> Verse 23, it says, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. Who's surprised by that? Does it not seem like everywhere that the, that the message of Jesus is brought, there's a great commotion? And so this is, this is not our first rodeo with great commotions. The way that they mentioned there, that's just one of the names people used for the movement of Christ followers at the time. Okay, uh, They were first called Christians at Antioch, but this, the way, was what they were called too. Some people just considered it a sect of Judaism, but they called it the way. These are the people who followed Christ. And it says, a great commotion arose concerning what Paul had been teaching. And so let's see what this commotion was all about. We're going to go verses 24 through 27. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana. Now I'm going to use the word Diana. I'm going to use the word Artemis. Same person. One is just the Greek name. But I, I go back and forth, and I knew I might confuse somebody, so hopefully I won't confuse you too much. I'll go back and forth. But they say Diana here. Made silver shrines of Diana. Brought no small profit to the craftsmen. He called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. So we got Demetrius, right? 
He's a silversmith. He makes silver shrines. We don't know exactly what these are. In my research, there were different people thought different things. Um, it, you know, there was, uh, as you know, there was a great temple there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, to Artemis or Diana, to this uh, idol, basically. And these guys were making money by making shrines and things like that for people to buy. Um, this was big business. This was big business for them. It's very clear. Demetrius and these other folks were making a good income from selling this stuff. And you'll notice that the thing that they talk about first and foremost is the profit from the silversmithing for the making these things. That's what they mentioned most prominently. It's not until later on, kind of towards the end, that he talks about, oh, they're dishonoring this idol, right? This idol that we have. That's mentioned at the end. So it's clear what this is about. What is Demetrius upset about? They're worried about their wallets, right? This the way these believers, these Christ followers, are hitting the bottom line for these idol sellers, and they're not happy about it. They're not happy about it. And it tells you something when he says that Paul has persuaded Ephesus for sure, and basically all of Asia, that these are not God, that God's made by hands are not really God's, right? He's done this. This is really hitting them hard. It shows you how much the Holy Spirit was doing, how much the Lord was doing in working in this area at this time. Many, many people have turned to follow Christ, and it was not slowing down, okay? It's not slowing down. The truth was being preached. The Holy Spirit was working to persuade people, and the message of the gospel that's being preached was very clear, right? These idols that these guys are making are nothing, That's what Paul's preaching. They're nothing. These shrines you're making are not the real thing. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. He's died. He's risen from the dead, and he's defeated all this darkness. This is the gospel, right? You cannot be close to God by buying shrines and things made of silver and making sacrifices to some idol in some temple. You can only come to God through his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. Through grace, we're saved, right? Through faith, you can't do it yourself. Silver does not save you. This is the message, and it's being, and people are believing it and moving forward in it because there's power in this message. Well, that's going to hit the bottom line, right? That's going to hit the bottom line if what you do is sell idols, It's going to hit it pretty hard. And so if people don't believe in your shrines anymore, you're not going to sell a lot of shrines. So the line at the shrine shop is shrinking. Demetrius is getting a little concerned about that thing. So he goes and he wants to rile people up. And he first, he does it, he's he's pretty smart about this. He first hits their wallets because he knows they're going to be really upset about that. Hey, you're going to make less money if we keep letting these Christ followers, these Christians, these folks, continue to persuade people to follow Christ. You're going to make less money, and our whole thing that we do is going to be brought into disrepute. And then he goes to, oh, and by the way, you all have this civic and cultural pride in this big temple we have here in Diana, Artemis, whatever. And so then he does what he can to stir people up. He gets their wallets, then he appeals to their regional pride. We've seen kind of this sort of pattern before in certain ways. Now let's look at verse 28 and see how they reacted to that. It says, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Okay? It worked. Demetrius gives his pep talk, and he gets everybody all riled up, and they're chanting their little fight song. Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Here's the thing. People say things about God all the time. I don't know if you have a television, 
okay? But if you do, you may notice that not everybody says wonderful things about God or their belief in God or whatever. Let me tell you what I don't do, what my reaction is not when people say things about God that are negative. I don't start a cheer. Give me a G. Give me an O. That's not what I do. Because I don't think that that's a reasonable way to deal with somebody who's making objections. Remember, Paul is persuading. He's reasoning. He's bringing truth. He's got witnesses to the resurrection. That's what he's doing. These guys, their way of fighting is just to start yelling. A little fight song for Diana. Now, I do look great with pom-poms. I'm not going to lie. Um, but but <laughs> you guys aren't going to get that one out of your head for the rest of the sermon. That's <laughs> Wow, I'll bring some next week. All right, but my reaction is not to get the pom-poms out and say, great is God and you don't, that's nothing. Now, I'll I'll say great is God all day. I love worshiping the Lord, but that's not what this was about, right? My reaction is to speak the truth, to challenge the claims of those who are making claims against Jesus Christ, who would deny God. And here's the thing, I'm fully 100% confident in God's ability to take on challengers. He doesn't need me. If people are going to deny God at the end of the day, that's an issue they're going to have to deal with, okay? But these guys obviously don't feel that way, okay? I don't need to get angry and start a furious mob every time somebody says something negative. Whether people believe in God or not, I know the truth. I've thought well about it. I've thought long and hard about it, and God has shown me through faith who he is. I don't need to worry about that. These guys did not have evidence-based arguments for Diana, Okay? They were caught up in a religion of cultural pride and, frankly, nonsense. That's why, that's why you don't see a lot of people these days trying to convince you to worship Artemis or Diana. All right? um, if you can make your goddess, this is just a general rule of thumb. You can write this down if you want. If you can make your goddess out of silver or stone, spoiler alert, it's not a god. Okay? It's not a goddess if you made it with your hands. Okay, we don't, we don't do that. So Demetrius and these other guys clearly didn't really believe in Diana, or they figured she could probably handle this for herself. If they thought there were better arguments in favor of Diana, they could simply put forth those arguments and convince all the Christians that some statue that they had made was more powerful or more likely to be God than Jesus Christ, who came, lived, and rose from the dead, verifying his claims. But of course, they couldn't do that. And so they had to gather a mob, okay, appealing to their local prejudice and their passions because there was a major civic pride here. You need to understand that Ephesus was the center of the worship of Diana or Artemis. It was the center of that, and so it was a big deal. It brought a lot of money into their city, not just to these guys, but to people probably who would visit, things like that. This, this seven wonders of the world, this huge temple, 60-foot pillars all around. You can go online and take a look at the recreation um, or mock-ups of what this temple looked like. Of course, it's not there anymore, um, but they did have that temple. So these guys are selling merch, right? And they're making money, and they had a lot of juice with the rest of the Roman world because they came from Ephesus. And it's true that there were people all over the world who were involved in this kind of idol worship with this particular goddess. So they get riled up and they say, you can't say that our city and our idol mascot is whatever. We're going to get angry. And so let's see what happens as they start to, start to gather this mob together. Let's read 29 through 31. It says, for I know this, that after my departure, that's the wrong chapter. We'll get there. Um, I like that one. Let's do that. Okay. Uh, So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater 
With one accord, having received Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. So they grab these guys, Gaius and Aristarchus, and they pull them into the theater. Okay? The whole city is filled with confusion as they're, as they're going around chanting this, these things. And these guys are Paul's travel companions. They're not even from there. They're from Macedonia, where we just showed you where that was. And they're traveling with Paul. I just wonder how hard it eventually got for Paul to find traveling companions, right? It's like, hey, uh, Gaius, Aristarchus, you want to do a road trip? And they're like, you know, last time we did that, a mob seized us and pulled us in, into the theater, so I'm going to stay home and watch Netflix this weekend, right? I'm, uh, traveling with you, Paul, is, is rough. It's rough. Um, but they grab these guys. Now, the theater in Ephesus, okay, is big. This is a big theater. We have a picture of it here. This theater could hold up to 24,000 people. Okay, that's more than the Moda Center or the Tacoma Dome. 24,000 people. I don't know how many people were there that day, but it says the whole city was filled with confusion, and mobs tend to attract a lot of people. That's kind of why they're called mobs, all right? If there was only a few people, you wouldn't call it a mob. You'd call it a small group of people. Um, So I don't know how many, but a lot, and it would have been incredibly loud. Now, imagine for those of you who have been at like a basketball game, a Blazer game at the Motive Center, or for like Glenn, the Justin Bieber concert. Um, (laughs) Poor Glenn. It's like every time. Um, <laughs> and there's all these people, right? And it can get really loud. And they put the thing up and they're like, get loud. And it's like, ah, right? And it's really loud. Um, just imagine being Gaius and Aristarchus who have been brought into this thing. And now we're the center of their very angry, very yelling attention. I'm guessing that they were not entirely comfortable. I, I'm going to ask them about that when we get to heaven. I'd like to know what that was like for them. Okay, but at least they got honored by getting their names in the Bible, which is, which is cool. Um, but I love how Paul is like, let me in there. I'll go in there. I'll calm down this mob. Yeah. Okay. So here's the thing. What Paul is thinking is, dude, there are thousands and thousands of people in there and I can go preach about Jesus. That's where his heart was. He just wanted to preach Jesus, not for himself, not for his own gain, but because he believed that lives could be changed, and he had seen it over and over that lives could be changed from Jesus. So he's really wanting to go in there, partially probably to protect Gaius and Aristarchus so that someone would eventually travel with him after this thing, but partially because I'm thinking he just wanted to preach Jesus, to get his chance to talk and to do his thing, persuading and reasoning with the people about who Jesus Christ was, about the resurrection of Jesus and the power of of the kingdom of God. That's what he wants to do. He wants to get in there, but his, folk, his, his disciple, not his disciples, Christ's disciples that were with him are saying, you know what? You should probably slow that down. Um, there's a lot of people in there. I'm not sure that they want to hear from you right now, and it's likely to end badly for you. And then he's got these friends, okay, these, these officials in Asia that he's become friends with. These, these guys are called Asiarchs, okay? These are wealthy Roman citizens that Paul had apparently, whether through his tent making or whether because these guys had become believers, had, had become friends with, which means the Lord had been giving him favor, had been, had been giving him success in meeting influential people. Part of his ministry was meeting influential people. I don't know. Maybe these guys were the guys with houses big enough for the church in Ephesus to meet. I don't know. But they also were sending word to Paul, hey, don't go in there. Don't do it. Not a good idea. And so uh, let's see what happens in the next verse, verse 32. I love this verse. I'll try to read it from the right chapter this time. It says, 
Um, Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. This is hilarious. You have a stadium full of people. They're yelling all kinds of things. Well, some of them are like, greatest Artemis or Diana. The other person's like, lower taxes. And some guy over here like, Ephesus High School football rules. Right? They don't know what's going on. They just saw a mob and they got together and thought it would be fun. That was the deal. They got in. It's confusion. They have no idea. This, the silversmith, you know, Demetrius' idea of riling all the people sort of in one thing didn't really work. All they really did was ended up with a big party in a theater in Ephesus with nothing going on. So let's see what, what happens. We'll read verses 33 and 34 here. It says, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. So Alexander, it's the Jewish folks that put, put Alexander forward, okay? Not to defend Christ, but probably because the way was considered a sect of Judaism to say, we're actually not a part of all that, to defend the Jews, that's, that's what the thought on this, who Alexander is. So he goes forward, <clears throat> you know, as all these people are yelling and going crazy. Yeah, let me just explain to you how we're not really with Paul. We're not really part of that. And they don't even want to hear it. And at this point, apparently, uh, one voice prevails. And they all figure that they're here to yell about how great Diana is. And they do it for two hours straight. Now, I've been like USA or whatever before. You've got about five of those in me. I'm done. Okay. I was, I was in a crowd one time that was doing the wave. You know you know what the wave is. Should we do it? No, we're not going to do it. <laughs> so they're doing the wave, and it's coming back, and it's going forth, and it's coming. They did it like 15 times. I'm, I'm like, guys, if you haven't gotten your stuff from this yet, it's time to be done. And that still only took probably five or six minutes. Two hours. Two hours. Apparently this mob is going to take this thing as far as it will go. And so for two hours they do that. Let's read the rest of the passage for today and see kind of how this thing ended. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And we, when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the city official is kind of like the mayor, okay? He comes in, he realizes something has to be done, and so he comes in to handle this situation. He basically says, listen, guys, everyone knows that you think this stuff about Diana. The temple is right over there. There's, what are you so worked up about? Don't freak out. He talked about the thing falling from heaven. That was, we, that's actually the only that I know of in ancient literature place where it would talk about Diana falling from heaven. But it wasn't an uncommon thing in these shrines to say that the statue fell from heaven or something like that. So I guess that's where they came from. But he's basically saying, listen, Stop freaking out. We all know you think this. You've been telling us for two hours. We get it. 
right? No one's confused about that. Um, but these Christ followers, these guys haven't done anything to you. They haven't done anything wrong. And if they have, sue them. The courts are open. If Demetrius has a complaint, bring it to the courts. Don't try to do this mob thing. This is a bad idea, he's saying. And it was a bad idea. What do you think? Remember, this is a Roman colony. What do you think the Romans think in a large city when all of a sudden thousands of people start to mob together? Do you think that they like that? No. When you're a conquering force, you don't allow unauthorized gatherings because that's how uprisings start. Right? And so you don't want all of a sudden Caesar to send a bunch of people there because you've been having mobs get together and cause trouble for you. So this mayor is, is doing the right thing, regardless of what he thinks about Diana or Christians or whatever, to get this mob to go home. And apparently he's able to talk some sense into them because at the end of the day, he was able to just dismiss them. Right? Okay. We're done. Go home. And apparently, probably because they never really knew why they got there in the first place. And even as they're shouting for two hours, probably didn't really know why they were doing it. It was probably relatively easy for them to be like, oh, okay, cool. I got to get back to work anyway, right? Or whatever. So they all leave. And Demetrius and these guys, these, these workers who make these shrines and stuff, all of it came to nothing. Okay? It came to nothing. They were unable to convince the Christians to give up Christianity by just getting really mad. Go figure, right? Go figure. And God, of course, protected Gaius and Aristarchus from danger in this situation. I'm sure they were quite relieved um, because I, get, I bet it was a little dicey there for a while. And so we see God once again coming in and handling this situation. Paul and the rest of the believers didn't have any problems. Now, there's a few things that I want to sort of tease out and, and work through in this passage that we've gone through. And the first one comes back to that question I asked earlier. I said, would you rather have laws that were enforced against every wrong thing, or would you rather people's hearts change so they did not want to do wrong things? Well, the answer is probably obvious, right? But we are political people. And what I mean by that is we participate in the government of our cities, our states, and our country. And we should take those duties seriously. We should think well and apply the mind of Christ to the decisions that we make publicly and for, and for our society, okay? But Paul did not start a crusade to make worshiping Diana illegal, to make worshiping idols illegal. That's not the way he went about this, right? He preached the gospel, and he taught the disciples of Christ all that Jesus had commanded. And the effect of that was that they stopped worshiping idols. The effect was so significant that these guys, Demetrius and whatever, had to get a mob together to try to save their prophets because it was such a significant effect. It was not law that changed the behavior of people from doing wrong. Because it's clearly wrong to worship Artemis and to worship idols that are made with people's hands. It's clearly wrong. But it was not law that got people to stop doing it. It was truth. It was truth and changed hearts. I had a professor in law school who said basically that he was more concerned with hearts than with laws. He was talking about the, the abortion issue, and he said, listen, I would rather, rather than changing the laws on the abortion issue, I would rather, it's fine to me if it's legal, as long as nobody shows up, right? As long as nobody shows up, because their hearts have changed. Now, that's a little rosy colored glasses, okay? You can't get rid of all laws and trust that all people's hearts are going to change and we don't have to worry about anything because theologically, that's off because we live in a fallen world. We know there are people who are going to choose wrong. Every single one of us in this room has done so at some time or another, 
right? And so we know that we, we do need some laws, but from a practical standpoint as a Christ follower, while very few of us have the jurisdiction to write laws or change laws, every one of us has the jurisdiction. In fact, the calling, the command to make disciples for Christ and teach them to obey all that he has commanded, and that changes hearts. That makes the line at the shrine shop get shorter, whether it's legal or illegal. So advocate for changes in law so that we have a more just and merciful and loving society, but advocate for, for truth and for morality, okay? And recognize that, that changing laws doesn't change hearts by itself. Legislation is not what changes hearts. Truth changes hearts. The love of Jesus Christ shown clearly and consistently in word and in action changes hearts. It's changed mine. It's changed many of yours. Okay? So there was no line among the Christ followers at the temple shop. Okay? But what if there was no line here for porn and drugs and prostitution and all those other things that we do that we know we ought not to do? What if there's just no line anymore? There was no line for sin. Sex always happened in the context of marriage. Whoa. What if all the divorce lawyers had to learn to do something else? Would not be a bad thing, okay? Um, what if nobody showed up for sin, not because it was illegal, but because Jesus Christ had transformed their hearts in the power of the Holy Spirit? What you can, listen to this, what you can do here through this body is far more powerful than what you will ever do with a ballot. Far more powerful. You have far more effect on the society with what you can do with prayer, <laughs> with living right, and these things far more than you'll ever do by checking a name on any box, on any ballot, anywhere, okay? And Paul has shown that. The, the believers here have shown that. And we could go through historic, historic uh, story after historic story of how the church has moved in and the culture has changed, not because they've initially gone after, gone to the Supreme Court or gone to change laws, but because hearts have changed and nobody wanted to do those things anymore. And the laws changed as the culture had already changed. That's your job. That's my job. That's what we can do together. All right. So advocate for good law, but love others so that those laws aren't needed. That's the first point I want to make. The second one is this. Back in verse 23, it said this. And about that time, there arose a great commotion about the way. Listen. If people's lives are being transformed and their behavior is changing and the rhythms of their lives are changing... It causes a commotion. It causes a commotion. Jesus causes a commotion. Wherever Jesus Christ is preached truly and effectively, there is a commotion because he's turning tables upside down. He's turning the world upside down. Jesus is real and he brings change and transformation and that causes a stir. It just does. If there's no stir, listen, if there's no stir, if there's no commotion, then I would be concerned. If in your life you don't see it, if everything is always all good, there's never any commotion, never any upheaval, never difficulty, never, never conflict, you might want to ask yourself whether you're in a lukewarm bath of religion, okay, rather than in the fiery transformative love of Jesus Christ because that, that second thing, that fiery, transformative, that reckless love that we sang about, that causes commotion. 
that causes a stir. It causes things to happen. Acts Church, listen, Acts Church is not the PTA or some civic organization that we come to to hang out. We are here to cause a commotion. This is a movement of God in the world to save people from their sin, to speak truth into the lives of people and to give them relationship through the loving sacrifice of Jesus Christ with God. Now that's, that's going to cause a commotion, okay? That should be causing a commotion. You cannot be in relationship with Jesus Christ, actively engage in a relationship with Jesus Christ and stay the same. Cannot be done. It cannot be done. Some of us wish it would sometimes, but it cannot be done. Listen, we are being transformed. We are being made new. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen one of these shows on like HGTV or the DIY network where they restore an old house? You ever seen one of those? Don't, don't act like you haven't seen those shows. I know your secret pleasures of watching the DIY network, or at least mine, okay? Um, here's what they do. They find some old house, trashed up house, okay? And they completely redo the whole thing. It's amazing. The paint is all chipped. The the lawn, the grass is all like overgrown. The bathroom's from like 1956. It's all jacked up. It's gross. It's old stinky, gross carpet on the floor. And the folks, they go to work. They come in there and they start tearing up the carpet, right? And they start like finding old cat turds and stuff. And they're throwing, I mean, it's just gross. The house is gross, okay? And wh whatever. And they're demolishing sinks in the bathroom, in the kitchen counter. People sledgehammer, slamming things around, pulling things out. It's loud. They're knocking down walls. They're taking out old drywall. And in the end, there is this amazing house that is clearly the old house, but it has been made completely new. This is like the process, Okay? Let me ask you a question. If the house was a person, okay, imagine the house was a person. What do you think she would think, or he? I just made the house a her. I don't know. Um, what do you think he or she would think as the people are pulling up the carpet, sledgehammering the fixtures, right, with, you know, just jacking this house up? Do you think that this person house would, uh, would like it? It's a commotion, right? It would be painful. It would hurt. The house would be wondering, when is this pain going to be over? I wish this new owner would have just thought, maybe a new coat of paint on the outside. Maybe mow the lawn. Leave my sinks alone, yo. This is painful. Don't, don't come in here and cause a commotion and upheaval, right? I wish this owner would care less about me. Because if, if they cared less about me, they wouldn't have to go into every nook and cranny and make everything new. They would leave some of it alone, and I could be sort of at peace because that house doesn't know, can't see what the newness is going to be somewhere down the road. All the house knows is that there's a whole lot of pain and a whole lot of commotion. But the owner is not satisfied until the whole house is clean and fresh and new. And this is how it is when God is working in us, okay? There is a commotion as he searches out the deep parts of our lives, destroying our old thoughts and habits and behaviors, leading us, teaching us, 
teaching us truth that makes us new. It is a miraculous process, but it is a commotion, a beautiful, sometimes very painful, but powerful, loving commotion as we're being made new. And it is awesome. It is awesome afterwards, <laughs> right? Tearing it sometimes is a little rough. But if there's no commotion in your life, just think about this as you struggle with things. If there's no commotion in your life, you may have been trying to shut the door on the new owner. Because I can tell you that if the new owner, God, in our metaphor, is doing his thing, there's commotion. If there's no commotion, you may be trying to hold the door shut. Let me just save you the trouble. He'll knock it down. He'll knock it down eventually, right? Uh, When we follow Christ and make him Lord, we surrender ourselves for the work of God that he's going to do in our lives for our good and for his glory. That's you personally. But there should also be a commotion in your family as as all of you are being changed. There should be a commotion in Christ's church. If the church is following Christ, there should be all kinds of commotion as the beautiful Commotion of our personal lives and our families comes together in this local expression of the body of Christ. All this beautiful commotion should be causing commotion in the world. In the world. Outside of this room. Outside of this place. Outside of our life groups. Outside of whatever. People should be noticing. Some getting angry. Some being like, what's going on? I want to check that out. Because there's commotion. They should be having a reaction to the message of Jesus Christ. Or we're not speaking the message correctly. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. Now, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses, for you essential oil people, you know what a diffuser is, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one we are the aroma of death, leading to death, and to the other we are the aroma of life, leading to life. And who is sufficient for these things? For we are not as so many peddling the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as from God we speak in the sight of God in Christ. Listen, we are the fragrance of Christ to some. I'm sorry, to all. To some, they follow their nose to life that fragrance. To some, they follow their nose or plug their nose, and it leads to death. But you're the fragrance. It's going to cause something. If it's causing nothing, you don't smell right. Right? Either way, there should be a commotion. And like the passage says here, just like Paul and the others, look, we're not peddling the Word of God. I got nothing to sell you. This is real. This is the real deal I can testify. I could, I could talk for hours. I won't. I could talk for hours about what God has done in my life and the commotion that he's caused and the things that he's done and the beauty of all of it and the pain of all of it and all that it's done and all that I can see it leading to and all that I trust God and believe that he's doing in my life. And I can talk about it for many of you because you've shared your stories with me. This is real. We aren't selling anything. We don't, hear, we don't need your money. <laughs> we don't need any of that. God just wants all of you. He just wants all of you so he can cause that commotion in you. But this is the real deal. Demetrius and the silversmiths, they're peddling religion for profit. Clearly. The passage just makes it so clear. They're peddling religion for profit. We preach the risen Christ who, if you will follow him, will transform you in a beautiful commotion into newness 
of life. And there's only one way to get this upgrade. you got to surrender to him. The last thing I want to say is this. Look, I know that we like to read these stories and lots of stories in the Bible, and we like to put ourselves in the position of like Paul or Jesus or whoever, right? We're the good guy in the story. Um, I want to let you think for a moment that sometimes, at least for me and probably for you, sometimes we're actually Demetrius. Sometimes we're actually uh, the bad guy. I'm sorry if anybody here is visiting his name Demetrius. It's not my fault it was in here. Um, just happened to be this guy's name. No offense. Somebody's going to be like, I just really felt like it was aimed right at me today. Um, <laughs> it's not, Demetrius, if you're out there, my bad. Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, though, following Christ is all okay until it hits something that we hold close. Sometimes following Christ is okay until it runs into one of our functional saviors, one of our idols, and we start getting sideways like Demetrius did. We don't want to let go of those things which make us feel like we have some control. For Demetrius and the silversmiths, it was clearly money, but it could be anything. About your money, about your time, about your home, your job, your hobbies, your pride, your little sin, whatever it may be, or mine. Do I sometimes get the silversmiths together and start a mob and a commotion and a confusion so I don't have to think about it? Yes. Have done. Shouldn't do. <laughs> what is it that when the gospel is fully preached, that when the full counsel of God is preached to you, makes you start to fight back? That's where we need to check ourselves. We need to guard our hearts against the pushback that we sometimes do, like Demetrius, when that beautiful commotion happens. We can't yell at God when he works on our house and be like, no, no, not that thing. That's my favorite decoration. Don't take that. Don't throw that out. And God's like, no, it's one of the cat turds. You think it's your favorite decoration. I'm telling you it's a cat turd. Sorry for all the turd talk, guys. But I, look, Scripture will talk about what some of this stuff is, and it uses more uh, difficult language than that sometimes, and we'll get there. But the point is, is that sometimes we hold things close, we think they're important, and we've made them into functional idols, and they're nothing. They're nothing more than the silver statues that Demetrius is making. They're worthless. We find in them some sort of control, or we find in them some sort of thing that we don't want to give up. And so as that beautiful commotion is happening, and things are changing, and, and, and God is making us new, we push back, we hold back, we hold the door closed. We need to be careful and check ourselves that we're not doing this, that we're open to the Lord speaking to us, that we're open to the Lord changing our hearts. Any of you who have children know that sometimes they don't know what's good for them, right? Sometimes, I always did as a kid, but some kids, some kids don't, and we know as good parents that we can't let them do things that will harm themselves just so we don't have to listen to them cry. A parent that does that has some things to work on. If you know your kid's doing something harmful, but you're like, but he'll cry if he doesn't get to do it. He likes to play on the freeway. <laughs> right? No. No. You pull the kid away. Is he going to be mad? I say he because boys are worse about this kind of stuff. But <laughs> Is he going to be mad? Yes, he's going to be mad. Is he going to cry? Yes, he's going to cry. Is he going to, Is he going to start a mob with his friends? No more parents rules. Yeah, maybe. It's happened, maybe. I want to talk about it. But what is our job as a parent? What's God's job as a parent? Nope. I'm not going to allow it to happen. As he makes us new, there's some fighting back that may happen. But 
We don't want to push back against God when God is just doing things that are good for us, that are for our good and for his glory. And so we need to have an eternal view. We realize that we will not see the completion of our newness until the day of Jesus Christ, but we have to have faith and trust God that he's doing that. And we can see what he's already done. You know, we can see what he's already doing. So make disciples for Christ who won't need laws to help their behavior because they just won't show up for sin. Start with that. Let Jesus cause a beautiful commotion in your life, in your families, and in this church, or whatever church you're from if you're visiting today, so that people can see the real thing. You want action? You want action? Let the commotion be the commotion. Preach the word. Speak it. Be kind, be loving, but don't hold back from truth because it might cause a commotion. Jesus causes commotion. Let's be part of that. Do not, do not cause your own commotion. Do not cause a stir Everything, every time God does something we don't like or that hurts a little bit. Trust him in the process of transforming you. Trust him in the process of transformation. He is good. But, as C.S. Lewis says, he is not a tame lion. Well, thanks for listening to our sermon. Again, this has been a sermon from Axe Church in Camas, Washington. We hope you enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. If you did, you can subscribe to our channel as well as liking and commenting. We love to hear how these sermons are impacting you. You can also take a look at our podcast series that we have out. And we'll catch you again next week.